But we are, we are back into 1 Samuel this morning. I don't know if you recognize this. These are the readings we had for last week because we never got around to the readings. What was it we talked about all last week? The whole period. Talked about whether or not God regrets or how God regrets if he repents. So I, I hope you found some uh, positive, helpful information in that and get the wheels turning a little bit. I don't know if we ever came to a, a solid conclusion, but the text says he regrets, and however he does that, it's probably not the same way we do it or for the same reasons, but, but there it is. So we're to chapter 16, and we will do some readings, assuming we have some readers. Who would like to read this morning the first five verses of chapter 16? All right, already got a hand. Oh, Rich is going to start us off. Verses 1 through 5, and then verses 6 through 13. This is chapter 16, 6 through 13. Anybody else want to read? All right, Shannon has got that. And then 14 to 18, we'll read this section, and then we'll stop and talk about what we've read. All right, I'll read 16 to 18, or 14 to 18. That, that's what that is, So, if I can remember what I told myself to read. All right, Rich, take us off. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesus, the Bethlehemite, or Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go when Saul hears of it? He will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint me, the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling trembling to him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor the Lord has chosen this one. Jesse had several of his sons, seven of his sons, pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. 
Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of water, or wine rather, and a young goat, and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Right, we got the introduction of David, the son of Jesse. And he's the youngest of how many brothers? Okay. If you take a look down there at verse 10, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. So seven passed by that we know of, and Jesse says there's one more. He's out in the field tending the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him in and find out that's the one. The Lord doesn't look on the stature. He looks on the heart, which is interesting because who did God choose as king or who did God provide as king for the Israelites? A man on whom you would look and notice his stature first of all because he was head and shoulders above everybody else in height. And so God is letting us know that that's really not the basis on which you should look for things. By the way, last week as we talked about God regretting things, when did he initially regret making Saul king, do you think? Don't you think it was right off the bat? <laughs> what was the statement that he made to Samuel? Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So, so there's been regret with this all along. And God provided them a man that likely they would look at and say, yeah, that's, that makes sense that he would be the king. He's the tallest guy here. That's just kind of the way we, we do things. And so there you go. And now we've got God's man who's chosen, and that's David, a man after God's own heart. What skill does David have that Saul needs? He's a harp player. He's a musician. And Saul didn't even come up with this idea, did he? It was Saul's servants. He said, man you got an evil spirit. Where did that evil spirit come from? How does that work? I don't remember if it's this class or others, but there are several passages that talk about God sending a deluding influence on those who do not love the truth. And I think that's kind of what we've got going on here. One of those passages is the first chapter of Romans, and another one is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Don? 
believe God sins in the evil spirit. I don't believe sin is a polluting spirit. I mean, the wording and things like that are always like that, but it just seems to me if, if God doesn't allow us to be tempted for what we can what we can overcome that He can help us with, then basically the way I see it, and I don't know if this is wrong or right, indifferent, but it just seems to me He can pull His hand back. Like He doesn't allow an evil spirit to do anything they want to us, but if He wants to pull His hand back, them spirits are just going to do it on their own, I suppose. Right. I mean, that's the way I see it. I just see him pulling back his his protective hand on us to a degree that that we can handle, and that he could, that Saul could have handled if he called on the name of the Lord, but he didn't. You know, as in the case with Job, uh, God didn't call the devil and say, "Hey, you want to you want to try your shot at Job?" But the devil was there. He made the offer, and God said, "All right, and, and here's what you'll do. Here's where you'll be limited." And, and that's how God set the stage. And in this situation, God is still the one in authority. That's one of the things, if you read through the Revelation, you find out that all authority, all power, all the decision-making is done at the throne of God. He's the one presented in Revelation as the power. He is the, the one and only power. Other people are exercising some degree of power, but they're only doing that at the, at the will, at the behest of, of God, and do it under his uh, watchful eye, only as far as he will allow them to go. My husband would tell you that if I get upset with him, I've probably got an evil spirit in me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that comment more than you know, uh, and I will make no further comment on it. Because <laughs> how many of us, how many of us like like that? can look back at times and say, what was, what was I thinking? And we just let our flesh get the best of us sometimes. But in this case, it wasn't just Saul's flesh. I think his flesh had led him to the point where God said, all right, if that's the direction you're going to go, you're not going to obey me with uh, waiting for Samuel. Samuel tells you to wait, and you don't wait. You're faithless in that regard. You're not going to obey me with regard to killing the Amalekites like I told you to do. So if, if this is going to be your mindset, then here's where we're going to go with it. It's like when, uh, I think a week or two back, we talked about when, when your child wants to smoke and you catch him with a cigarette, you say, all right, you smoke every one in that pack, and it makes them sick. And that, that's the idea, anyway, behind all that. So for whatever reason... This is how it's playing out. And because of that evil spirit, isn't it interesting? Saul didn't suggest a musician, and Saul certainly didn't know about David, but his servants suggested a musician, and one of those servants knew about David. And there's no backstory to this. There's nothing in the text that explains, well, this is how God worked it out. God put a man there who knew David and gave this other guy the idea to suggest a musician. It doesn't say any of that, but there it is right there in the text. And so David, the one whom God has chosen, is brought into the presence of Saul. And it's not because God says, get on over there, boy. It, it works out this way. But we've all had experiences of our free will being tested. And uh, we think we know better than anybody else, you know. Especially as we are young, and you, as you said, <clears throat> you know, so you're going to smoke, huh? Well, okay. Uh, 
just roll all the windows up in the car. This is my experience, okay? Roll all the windows up in the car and all this smoke until you stop. Well, there was about two or three of us that were turning green when we rolled the windows down. And, and uh, because of that, uh, I personally had no desire to smoke at all after that experience. But uh, free will is something that God grants to his creation. Even the angels have free will. And God does not set you up to where the, uh, you're going to fail. No, he sets you up so that you can succeed. Now, whether you succeed or fail is up to you. But that's, uh, you know, we always have to remember that. Even our own children. Right. We allow them to do something that we know is not good for them. We, we, we counsel them. But we also realize that sometimes experience is the best teacher. An excellent thing to learn is that we always have choice. We always have choice. And just like Don pointed out, the text from 1 Corinthians where God says, I'm not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but with every temptation I'll give you a means of escape. So there's always a way to escape. There's always a way to get out. James wrote, remember what James wrote about God? He said, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you resist the devil... He will flee from you. So God says, here's your arsenal. I'm it. I'm your arsenal. You draw near to me, and I'm going to help you through all these things. But if, if we pull away like Saul is pulling away, his faith is not in God. It's like God has given him this kingship, and he's, he sees the kingship as the, the seed of his power, the root of his power, what he has to hold on to to keep his power, to keep his status. Whatever he's trying to hold on to, it's not God. It's something else. And so because of that, God is allowing this evil spirit to torment him. And due to that, David's brought in. Now here's another thing. Uh, I'm going to throw this out there because I think this deals with everyday life. Where do you suppose David learned to play the harp? It doesn't say that, but that's exactly what I think. What do you do when you're out there with the sheep? Because that's where he was when Samuel came looking for the one he was supposed to anoint. He didn't know it was David. He just knew it was one of Jesse's sons, and he sees all these big, tall boys parade by, and he says, that's got to be the one. Oh, not that one, not that one, not that one. Seven times, not that one. Well, got any more? Yeah, I got my little runt son, David. He's out with the sheep. And so he brings him in, and that's the one. In my mind, David's out with those sheep, and he's, how many psalms are there written by David? Do you suppose any of those were written while he was out there with those sheep? And, and he, he probably played, sang those songs. What else do you think he might have done when he got tired of playing the harp? He might have practiced with his sling. Now, this is all speculation on my part. But what I'm saying is the things that you and I learn in the day-to-day -day exercise of our lives, the skills that we have, I see as skills that God can and will use in his service if we will allow him to do that. And here's why I'm thinking about this. God did not say, 
All right, we need a man to play the harp for Dave first. For Saul, I'm going to miraculously give David the ability to play the harp. Boom, here you are, son. Get on in there and take care of it. Oh, you're facing a giant? Well, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. I'm going to give you a sling, and you're going to be so good with this sling because I'm going to give you the miraculous ability to hit him in the forehead with a stone. See, there wasn't any of that in the text. David was just a good musician, probably learned to be that way out there with those sheep. Whenever he learned it, however he learned it, I, I think it's worthy of us seeing that it wasn't by anything miraculous that God did. It was just a skill that he had. Sling, slings, yes? Think that he wrote those the Psalms as a young boy. Okay. I think it was the experience that he had after that. Pretty uh, many of them were, especially like the fifty-first Psalm is obviously after he had done something really bad, and probably the thing with Bathsheba was it. At any rate, he got that in his life. From some means other than a, than a miraculous means. So take a look at your life and see what skills you have that God may be able to put into practice. And, and maybe he's trying to urge you in one way or another to use those skills to bless somebody else and to, to bring God into their lives in one way or another. And I don't know what that might be, but, but you have your skills and I have mine and we may have skills that we would never think would be related to the kingdom, but here we see God using uh, a man who's good at music and a good stone slinger. By the way, he only used that sling once, didn't he? That was enough. What's that? We don't know, but I mean, as far as in the, the, doing anything great that's recorded in history, he, he just used it the one time. Great. For some means... That he committed himself wholly to God because that's the only way you can have a heart for God is if you commit yourself to it. And doesn't he tell us when he was going after the giant that he had slain a bear and a lion? Mm -hmm. Well, that takes something. You know, courage, uh, his reliance on God to keep him safe. So he demonstrated that he had the heart for God. Right. What did they say about him when they were reporting to Saul what kind of guy he was? Look at verse 18. I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. So how did he know all this? Was he just making it up on the fly, or were these things that... David had already lived out in his life, and somehow this young man knew about it. Bud? One of the questions I used to ask my Bible class was, how many rocks did David pick up before he threw the first one? Right. And he picked up five. Mm -hmm. He was showing confidence in God by, by, by walking down there. Because everybody else said, no, no, he's too big, He you know, he was going to kill you. He's going to stomp you. Well, he said, but he also had confidence in himself. But he says, just in case, I'm going to, I'm going to take, uh, you know, if, when you're hunting out in the woods, you take one shell? No. <laughs> you, you take about a handful, put them in your pocket, <laughs> just in case. Yeah. 
Now they got these vests, and you can put magazines all over the front of your vest. It's like, are you going to war with the deer, or are you just going to hunt them? She tells this story about going squirrel hunting. And my dad said, there's one up there in the tree. She She gets the 22 sheets and she doesn't go hunting. She just did what he said. Shot right through the eye. Then from the squirrel. Picks up and said, you shot right through the eye. She said, that's right where I think. It's dangerous. No, actually, not dangerous at all. Pretty safe if you can shoot that good. Absolutely. Because um, I've been really wrestling with this lately. On it's it's hard for me to rest when I know when I believe it's totally my free will. And I want to make the example of uh, of the smoking thing because my free will is going to go smoke. And I may not have somebody fast enough to keep me from smoking and by making me smoke all them cigarettes. So now I'm hooked. I'm doing this over and over and over. Now I realize I'm hooked. I'm hooked on this smoking thing that I made the free will choice to do it. Now I call on God. Maybe too late, you know. And so the point... Well, I hope I can get this out correctly. It's hard for me to describe, but I want God... I want to rest in God that He will sanctify me, that He will change me. But I know I have these free will decisions. So when I call on God, He might not fix that smoking... Immediately, I've already done this, and I'm hooked now. My flesh is hooked, and he might not go. Oh, here, here's a miracle. You're not hooked anymore. Now you got to call on God. Now you got to deal with this thing that you're hooked on over and over. I'll even make the analogy, and I don't like to, but because I don't think it's the main thing. But we could use that as overeating, smoking, overeating. I mean, they both do this about the same damage, health issues wise. I mean, if we want to look at it that way. So now we're hooked. And so, what point can we count on God's mercy that? We're not overcoming, and I, and I like to use those analogies because they're easy ones. Man, I got worse ones that sometimes I'm just calling on God saying, be merciful to me. You know, I'm, I'm not overcoming this right away. It was my free will that got me into this, these thought patterns or whatever it is that I struggle with. And uh, now I'm counting on God's mercy, and I want to count on His grace to sanctify me and change me. And maybe over time, make me smoke so much that I don't like it anymore, you know, so to speak. And so I find rest in God shaping me and molding me, that I'm counting on His power to help me. And then I'm counting, and in the meantime, I'm counting on His mercy this whole time. And I want to give glory to Christ crucified, not me overcoming by my free will all the right. time by my human effort. Right. I, I don't know if I explained that well enough, but as best I could. Well, what you are talking about makes me think about Paul when he said, I've got a thorn in the flesh, and I've asked God three times to remove it, and He hasn't removed it. And I used to think he was talking about his sight because there are other indications that he had a vision problem in the scriptures that are pretty clear. But he's talking about a thorn in the flesh. That's how he described it. And when he writes about the flesh, he always puts it against the spirit. And so I wonder if instead of some physical ailment, he's talking about some spiritual problems, some temptation that he's dealing with, and he doesn't want to have to deal with that, but he's got it. And he's asking God, take this away from me. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient. You're going to have that lust, whatever it is, that temptation, that inclination to this sin. Because I, I don't know, there's nothing in the scriptures that teach me, and if you know of it, let me know, 
that if you're having trouble with a temptation, that, that God will just remove that temptation from you so you won't have to deal with it anymore. Or if instead he's doing what we're talking about and saying, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. You, you just keep dealing with that because that's, that's faith. That's what faith is. Faith isn't going to God and getting everything you want like he's a big Santa Claus in the sky for your spiritual weaknesses. God is the one who says, nope, that's what you got. We're going to work through this. Uh, just like you know, you go to a, a coach for, on a sports team. You say, coach, this is my problem. I can't do this. You know, that's about the worst thing to tell a coach. Because what's he going to do? Yeah, coach, I don't do free throws very well. All right. I want to see 500 free throws before lunch. (laughs) You're going to get so tired. Oh, coach, I don't have very good wind. Oh, you don't have very good wind? Uh, Let's let's do some, I don't know what you called them, but when you down and backs, down and back, down to the wind sprints, yeah. Their shin sprints is what they are, shin splints or whatever. But, but when, when you express that, that's what a coach says, all right, we're going to work on that because that's where we need to take care of, of your weaknesses. If Saul had gone to God and said, will you help me get my life straight? You've made me king, and I've been faithless towards your prophet, and I've been faithless towards you. I'm so sorry. I realize now that I'm going to lose the kingdom, but that's all right. I don't want to lose you. Take the kingdom. Give it to another man who's better than me. That would be great, Father, because I'm, I'm thinking I need to be looking out for the welfare of your people and your glory and not mine. If Saul had said that, how do you think God would have responded to him? I think pretty well. And, of course, it's all speculation. We're speculating about things quite a bit this morning, it seems. But you think about it. Did he have the opportunity to do that? I think he did. He could have done that. He could have turned towards God. But instead, what we see throughout the rest of this text is he's got the Lord's anointed before him. And what does he try to do multiple times? He tries to kill him. Because this isn't about God's glory and God's will. This is about small little Saul wanting things to be his way and are not going his way. And so he's going to throw a hissy fit and try to make things happen his way. And the the irony, here's the tallest man in Israel behaving in the smallest fashion he possibly could. Steve? That's the free will. We have free will to do what we want to do, right? Like Donald's talking about free will to smoke. But you also have free will to ask God to help you. It's free will both ways. It just depends on what we want. What, what do you really want? What did Jesus want in the garden? What did he want more than that? Well, not his will. That, but he did want the cup to pass, didn't he? But more than that, more than that, he wanted his father's will to be done. Not my will, but thine. Not my will, but yours. If it's possible, let this cup pass. But if not, I want your will to be done. And that's that should be our prayer. Will to say, God, your will to be done. Yes. 
exercising his will to put God's will above his own. Think about the power that there is in that ability to decide. I want you, God, to do what you know is best above what I want. Academically and intellectually, that makes so much sense. But how many of you have pretty strong wanters? I got a good one. Well, I don't know if good's the right word, but it's pretty strong. What's that? Powerful. It's powerful. Don, did you have a hand up? In, in the tax collector that wouldn't even look up to heaven and said, Be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. Yeah. And the Pharisee that said, Well, I give 10%, I fast twice a week, I do this, and I do this, and I do this. I just, I timed a lot of comfort, especially when I realized, Wow, all this stuff that the, the religious, the religious, Religiousness that I've reached isn't going to get me there. <coughs> saying, just confessing my sins, and and, and and sometimes it's taken years, but I found that if as long as I'm confessing my sins, it's like I'm being molded from the inside out, and change happens slowly. You know, it's not like oh, I fixed it. Oh, and I even know a point where it was fixed if it was completely fixed, but I noticed myself. Oh, I'm, as I look back, I go, wow, I think God's changing me. Not me, not my free will, but my bootstraps, my human flesh, you know, doing it. You know, it's just by just confessing my sins and, and counting on His grace and His mercy. Yeah. I take a lot of comfort in that and a lot of rest. And it takes time. And if you think about faith, the whole idea of time is built into faith. You, you can't have faith, boom, okay, I had faith. No, you, you have faith for the long run, for the long term. It's, it's about a relationship with God and a view towards God that you're living in him in, in the long term. I could, I could be down to a slim trim 195 right now if I could do it in a week without getting sick, I mean. Because right now I weigh like 200 and on your business. But, <laughs> but you know what that's like. If, if you've ever had the problem of weighing more than you want, you know, I'm going to lose some weight. And you start and you do pretty good for the first hour. <laughs> I want to say a few days. But, man, it's, it's just hard because there's so many things out there that are good to eat. And we have an abundance and the flesh is saying, yeah, you don't need to be 195. What's the point? People that are in good shape die too. There's all kinds of things you can say. But, but when you think about where Saul was, think about all the arguments he might have used to, to satisfy his own situation. <coughs> I'm king. I should be able to do what I want. God has made me king. If God made me king, he must approve of me. All the things he could look at himself and say and be mistaken about. And we can do the same thing. And so we're, we're looking at, at how this tragedy of Saul's life is playing out right there on the page. And David is, is, is arising. But how difficult is David's rise to the throne going to be? 
That, that's coming in the next few chapters. Uh, I, want, I almost said Charles, but you're, you are Charles, aren't you? Uh, Carol Brandon asks online, so are verses 15 and 16 an example of God helping Saul with a thorn in his flesh? Uh, so the question is, with verses 15 and 16, is this an example of God helping Saul with his thorn in the flesh? I, I don't know that this is as much about Saul as it is about David. To me, I'm seeing this because how many... How many harp players do you think there were in Israel? And, and this isn't even Saul's idea. Oh, thank you, sir. It's, it's one of his servants' idea, and one of the other servants says, Hey, I, I know a kid that can do this. So I don't think this is as much about Saul. However, do you see some mercy in that? Do you see some grace in that? God's saying, all right, let's, let's give him somebody to calm him down. Who are we going to get to calm him down? We're going to get, we're going to get a young man who's going to be his replacement. And if Saul's mind was right, he could have learned that and said, this is great. Lord, uh, thank you for what you've done for me, teaching me some humility. But that was not Saul's mindset. So it's a good question. I, it's an opportunity for Saul to humble himself, but he never seems to do that, except kind of falsely. You know, he humbled himself when, when Samuel approached him about his sin, and he said, I've, I've sinned, like with the Amalekites. He finally relented and said, I've sinned, and he begged Samuel. It was pitiful. It was embarrassing to read that. Um, but it wasn't real repentance because you're seeing the fruit of that repentance here. Good question. Thank you, Carol. Anybody else got anything before we move on? All right. Let's go to chapter 17. I need a reader for 1 through 7. Anybody feel like reading? <clears throat> Take a drink of water. I got water now. I forgot about it. Shannon's going to read again. He's going to do double duty. All right, for the sake of time, go ahead and read, and let's talk about those first seven verses. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesamon between Soka and Azekah, and Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp, and he was over nine feet tall, had a bronze helmet on his head, and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Have you worked out the modern-day weights of any of these things? How tall was he? About, about nine and a half feet, if the estimate of a cubit is accurate to be about a foot and a half, about 18 inches. So he's about nine and a half feet tall. How tall is it between the floor and that ceiling right there? 
Think that's a 10-foot ceiling? I don't know if it's 10-foot. Get your estimators out. <laughs> that, that coat of mail, the scale armor, I said coat of mail, this says scale armor, 5,000 shekels, that's about 156 pounds. Imagine putting on armor, just the upper body covering is 156 pounds. That's what I weighed when I went in the service. The, uh, the head of his spear, the head of his spear, 18 plus pounds, that's a bowling ball. Think about it. You've got a spear, and on top of your spear is something that weighs as much as a bowling ball. What do you do with a spear? You throw it. He's so when you see people talking about Goliath, well, he was one of these guys that had this hormone problem, and he was just big, but he probably wasn't very well proportioned. No, he was a mighty warrior. He wore heavy stuff. He had a heavy spear. He was a giant. And so, pretty intimidating. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 talents or shekels of iron. And this shield carrier was uh, also walked before him. So he's coming out to challenge the Israelites. Let's read 18, or 8 through 11. Who's got that? Anybody feel like reading? Oh, Steve. Thank you. And shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come up and drop your mouth? Am I not a Philistine, or are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All right, verse 11. They were dismayed and greatly afraid, and so they called on God. Oh, wait a minute, I didn't read that in there. Did you? Wouldn't that have been the thing to do here? Now, the Valley of Elah, I don't know if you've ever, anybody ever been to the Valley of Elah? You see a picture of it. It's not a, it's not a huge, vast valley. It's like there's a little stream down there, and, and there's a hillside over here and a hillside. They were close. And he comes out between the two armies, and he offers his challenge. And instead of asking God, what do we do, Lord? They just quiver. And I've wondered, why, why is there no one present? And where's Samuel at this point? Why didn't God send Samuel down there to rectify this situation? What's all this about? What's that? All right. Who's coming to the forefront because of Goliath? This is where David... You ask anybody, even if they never read the Bible, what did David do 
and people will tell you, he killed that giant. Well, David did a lot of things besides kill the giant, but that's, that's what people are aware of. For the most part, David killed the giant. This is where he comes really to the forefront. Now, we might think he's already to the forefront because he's in Saul's court. He plays the harp for him when he has this evil spirit. But that doesn't really do it. This is what really does it. And we'll see him really being put forward here. And they're going to start singing songs about him. The young ladies are. And they'll also sing songs about Saul. What will they sing? They'll sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul will say, fantastic, our nation finally has a great leader that our people can put some faith in. I'm so glad we've got a soldier in our ranks like David who could show us what a true Israelite warrior is like. That's not what Saul says, is it? Not even close. So more trouble, more opportunity to do good, more opportunity to see God working with the nation and through the nation and bringing about good, but it's, it's all missed. It's all overlooked for something else. Nobody... From when God told Samuel that he wasn't rejected, that Saul rejected him. Right. And everything after that shows how he did it. Bad decision, one after another, until he was killed. Until he was killed, <laughs> right, right up to the last moment. And it's, it's sort of poetic. What did the Philistines do with his body? He he pretty much lost his head all the way along, and then at the end, they they actually do literally cut his head off. And they, they do what with his body? They're hanging on the wall of Bethshan. And it's like, we're just, all we're doing is reading what Saul did. And it's like, he's, he's still on display. His humiliation, his foolishness, his selfishness, his pride, it's, it's all right here. It's horrible to see this. But I wonder if, has it been one bell or two? Okay. I wonder if those who will be in hell, if their life will be before them constantly, their memories, their reminders of the opportunities, the possibilities, the ways that they could have sought after God, the things they knew that they they ignored and that's what we've got of Saul's life here, all of this wrongness. And you and I have wrongness too. We, we wouldn't ever say that we don't. What's the difference? The difference is we take our wrongness to God through his son, Jesus Christ. I am no better than Saul. I am selfish like Saul. I am arrogant like Saul. I am small like Saul. I'm petty like Saul. I'm all of these things like Saul. Probably you are too. 
But we go to God with it, and he says, all right, let me show you what to do with this. Here's a situ- I'm going to put you in this situation here, and you're going to learn this. I'm going to put you in that situation there, and you're going to learn that. And I'm going to put you in this situation, and you're not going to see it for what it is, and you're going to make a bad decision about it, and then you're going to regret that decision, and then I'm going to put you in a similar situation later, and you'll see, oh, yeah, this is what I messed up on last time. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to do this instead. Because when you look for truth... When you look for what's right, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God can lead you to something that's good, to something that's better. Because he'll show you things, you, yeah, that's, that's what I want. I'll see that because I'm looking for what God's providing. But if you're all wrapped up in yourself, in your own wants, you won't ever see it. And so you won't ever be led in that direction. David was a man, How? After God's own heart, he sought God's own heart, and Saul was not, and it made all the difference. Well, there's our class for this morning. Was that? Yes. Yeah. Changes he's made in me, it's not something I've done to be good enough to go to heaven. It's a blessing that I can be thankful for. Wow, look, you reached me here. Right. Thank you. It keeps me out of trouble. Wow, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not completely destroyed my life because of your statutes. Righteousness has a payoff. Righteousness has a payoff here. So that, that's a great lesson. Appreciate the comment in closing. Thank you.